Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Malthrop. I'm chief executive here and also a proud member. Today is October 2nd, and you're with a virtual City Club forum live from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. We're very grateful for their partnership. Today is our annual Annisfield Wolf Forum. The Annisfield Wolf Book Awards were established in 1935 by Cleveland poet and philanthropist Edith Annisfield Wolf. The, the awards recognize books that have made important contributions to our understanding of racism and bigotry and our appreciation of the rich diversity of human cultures. The Cleveland Foundation, the world's first community foundation, has administered the awards since 1963. And for the past few years, the City Club has been proud to partner with the foundation to provide a forum for winners of these distinguished awards. And this year, we are honored to welcome Dr. Eric Foner, an educator, historian, and Pulitzer Prize-winning author often regarded as the Dean of Reconstruction Historians. He is the recipient of the 2020 Annisfield Wolf Book Award for Lifetime Achievement. Dr. Foner is Professor Emeritus of History at Columbia University and the author of more than two dozen books. Many people are largely unaware of the significance of the period after the Civil War, and yet many struggles, many of the struggles facing our society today, struggles around race, around citizenship, around the right to vote, are a direct result of constitutional amendments crafted and ratified during Reconstruction. Dr. Foner's writings are instrumental to our understanding of this period in our nation's history throughout his books, the most recent of which is called The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution, Dr. Foner reframes the traditional narrative of the Civil War and Reconstruction, changing the language of this historical period from a story of white supremacy to a narrative that focuses on black history, interracial democracy, truth and justice, and also opportunities missed. We'll talk with Dr. Foner about the Reconstruction era and how it relates to our to today's struggle for freedom and equality. And as in every City Club forum, if you have a question, please join us. Please text your question to 330-541-5794. The number again to text your question is 330-541-5794. And if you're on Twitter, please tweet your question at the City Club, and we will work it into the second half of the program. Dr. Eric Foner, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It is wonderful to have you with us. And I want to start by congratulating you on the Annisfield Wolf Award uh, for Lifetime Achievement. Um, you're at that stage as a professor emeritus when you get to receive Lifetime Achievements and you get to look back. This is a body of work you must be very proud of. Uh, yes, of course. I'm honored, to say the least, to receive this award. And, um, you know, I'm very gratified. Um, many years ago, I was at an event where the great historian C. Van Woodward received a Lifetime Achievement Award, and he said uh, in his talk, he said, you know, there's, uh, it's very nice, but there's uh, something disturbing uh, about it in that uh, it, it kind of carries this implication of finality. Yeah. Um, so um, I feel I am retired, but I feel my... Um, Life, my achievements are not totally over yet. At least I hope not. I hope not, too. Um, I want to dive right into the substance of the thesis of your most recent book, that the ratification of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments 
represent a, uh, a rethinking, a reshaping, a reframing of our Constitution. I think many people don't think of it that way or haven't thought about it that way until you helped us to think of it that way. But, but, but lay it out for us. Well, uh, yes, the argument is in the title, the second founding, that the rewriting of the Constitution after the Civil War is just as significant in terms of the legal constitutional structure we live with today uh, as the first Constitution of uh, 1787. Um, that, um, you know, that it really, it, it, it eliminated, th these three amendments, 13th, 14th, 15th, they eliminated slavery, They the first one, 13th, irrevocably abolished slavery. The original constitution did not mention slavery, but it did offer protections for slavery, as everybody understood. Uh, we can go into this greater detail, but the 14th introduced the concept of equality into the constitution for the first time, equal protection of the law. There was no such thing in the original constitution. And indeed, before the Civil War, there were vast inequalities, particularly between black and white, but between men and women and many other uh, groups. Uh, now equality became a constitutional um, right of uh, Americans. And finally, the 15th Amendment uh, tried to guarantee the right to vote for African-American men, uh, making this an interracial democracy, not just a democracy for white men, which it essentially had been before the Civil War. So the, the three amendments really changed the whole structure of our government and opened up, opened the door to struggles about the meaning of these ideas that are continuing right up to the present moment. You, you argue, though, that the ways in which these amendments were then interpreted in the courts really set back the progress that had, with which the progress with which Reconstruction had initially been launched. Yes, I mean the final chapter of my book is about the Supreme Court and not a very flattering account of how little by little by little after Reconstruction, or actually beginning during Reconstruction, the court whittled away, whittled away until these three amendments became virtual dead letters, at least in the South, um, by the time of the Jim Crow system uh, inaugurated in the 1890s and uh, continuing well into the 20th century. Um, and. Um, you know, the court just, uh, in the language of these amendments is general, it's principle, equal protection, privileges and immunities of citizens, due process. These terms cry out for specific meaning, for elaboration. And, uh, as the, and that task fell to the Supreme Court, but over time they interpreted the amendments, particularly when it came to the implications for African Americans, in the narrowest possible manner. One of my arguments is there were other jurisprudence ideas out there at the time. It's not like, it's not just me sitting here in 2020 looking back and saying, oh, you know, in 1890, those guys really didn't have the up-to-date views. That, that would be wrong to say, well, why didn't they think exactly as we do at the present? But in fact, there were many people at the time who criticized Supreme Court decisions, who said they are undermining these amendments, who said we need a different way of interpreting them. And the Supreme Court made its choice. It, it made its choice to really limit, as far as blacks were concerned, the rights that they were entitled to. And uh, I think it's a warning uh, for the present moment of what can happen to our constitutional rights uh, in the hands of a conservative Supreme Court. At the time, uh, the time you're referring to are the sort of decades following the ratification of the those amendments. 
And often what happens with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights is you have uh, you have lawyers and, and jurists and others referring back to the Federalist Papers as like, here's what the founders really meant. Did the 13th, 14th, and 15th have uh, champions in the way that the writers of the Federalist Papers were the champions of the Constitution? I think that's a very, very good question because, yes, even today, if you look at this, certain members of the court, not all of them, but they, let's say on the issue of federalism, the powers of the states versus the powers of the federal government, the conservative majority today seems to be pushing more toward a more state-centered kind of federalism. And exactly when they want to find what they call the original meaning, they go back to the 1787 Constitution. They skip right over the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which were severely, uh, which which severely limited the powers of the states. They were meant to uh, make the federal government what the great Senator Charles Sumner uh, called the custodian of freedom, not the states. The national government was to oversee what the states did in terms of protecting the basic rights of citizens. But the court doesn't look at that. It just It's as if the Constitution has never changed uh, from its first writing, or at least from the Bill of Rights of uh, 1791. Um, so I think there is a tendency to just uh, overlook or diminish um, the importance of these constitutional amendments, even for those who claim to be looking for, you know, the meaning in history. But they go, but they don't go to the right history, the history of the Constitution we have today. They go to the original Constitution, which has been fundamentally changed, as I said. So I just want to remind our listeners, we're talking with Eric Foner. He is the recipient of the Ennisfield Wolf Book Awards uh, Award for Lifetime Achievement. I'm Dan Malthrop. You're with the City Club Friday Forum. And, um, you know, we're in the midst of a really un, really remarkable, uh, some would say unprecedented moment for the United States history. And some people, listeners who have been tuned to the radio all day, wondering about the president's uh, COVID diagnosis and the implications of that. Um, are wondering why we're spending all this time on history. But it seems to me that the COVID diagnosis aside, that there are some just vitally important lessons here for our present time that we um, we often sort of forget our own history, Dr. Foner, um, and forget what what we can learn from it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, obviously you don't. We are a we're a forward look. You know, who was it? Uh, I think Herman Melville said, you know, the past is the world of tyrants. The future is the Bible of the free. In other words, Americans are more interested in the future than the past. We're a society which began by claiming it didn't have a past, that the whole point of the American Revolution was to slough off the whole European heritage and start something completely new again. Uh, that's what Tom Paine said in Common Sense uh, in calling for American independence. The birthday of a new world is at hand. So in that in that context, you don't need to know much about history. Unfortunately, history is a way of reasserting itself, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And certainly with Reconstruction, uh, as I argue, and as you know, most historians I think would say today, over the you know most of the period of the 20th century the history of reconstruction was gravely um distorted misunderstood when i was in high school i learned as many many people did at that time it is the mid 20th century that um you know reconstruction was just a time of misgovernment of corruption a big mistake 
And uh, the reason for that was giving the right to vote for, to black men, uh, that they were, this is a racism at the core of this, that black people are just incapable of taking part in uh, government properly. Um, now, if you hold that view, you're not going to think that the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment particularly um, are really uh, worthy of, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, accolades that they're part. They were part of a vindictive effort to suppress the defeated South, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you're going to interpret those amendments in a pretty narrow manner if you hold that view. Now, the fact is, historians have completely changed their view. We now see Reconstruction as a time of interracial democracy, of a lot of progress on the in the realm of uh, equal rights, civil rights for all Americans. Um, but that view took a long, long time to get into the opinions of the Supreme Court. And uh, for a long time, the court, the, their rulings would make would refer to Reconstruction in this highly negative way, even though historians had rejected that. So there's a jurisprudence based on a a fallacious understanding, so to speak, of Reconstruction. Uh, but those decisions, by and large, that were made over the 1870s, 80s, 90s, etc., are still out there. They've never been you know, overturned exactly. And so the, a jurisprudence still exists based on a misconception of history, uh, which I think is very damaging. So yes, knowledge of history is important even for the nine justices of the Supreme Court. The thing about Reconstruction that so many um, have forgotten, and so and you know, the, I think the average American citizen learns about it in a high school history class, and then probably doesn't think about it again for very long until they happen to tune into the radio on a Friday afternoon to hear from you, and um, and we forget that there was a moment shortly after the Civil War when African-Americans, freed slaves, were were running for office, were opening businesses, were um, in some communities and in some of their, in some communities that they built up themselves, really thriving um, in ways that oh, the yes. early history, the history of the, the first part of the 20th century, it's hard to see past some of that to, to what had existed, but was unable to take hold because of the strength of white supremacy across the country. Absolutely. I mean, you know, um, yeah, look, there were errors in reconstruction. There were problems just as in any other time of history. But I think you're right. One of the things that I try to emphasize is the positive achievements of everybody, but particularly of former slaves. People who two or three years earlier had been slaves are now reconsolidating their families, which had often been broken up in slavery, creating black churches all over the place as major independent institutions, creating schools for themselves and their children, going into business, all these sorts of things. There was a lot of progress, even, you know, with a lot of pushback against that progress. Uh, it was not easy in a devastated region after the war, the South, to get ahead economically. But if you did, you then faced the, the the real prospect of violent retribution by the Klan and other terrorist organizations, which wanted to make sure that white supremacy uh, could be restored. So, um, yeah, I think now maybe schools don't teach Reconstruction enough. I think they do teach it more than they used to. I think U.S. history textbooks are much better now about the Reconstruction era than they were 
uh, back in, you know, when I was in school. I mean, I went, I recently went to see my <laughs> high school textbook from the mid-1950s, and um, it it gave you this old view of Reconstruction as just a terrible misgovernment and a travesty of democracy. And it managed to do that in the entire book. It did not mention a single African-American by name. It did not mention Frederick Douglass. It did not mention Booker T. Washington. It did not mention, um, you know, you know W.E.B. Du Bois or uh, James, James Baldwin or anybody. Um, that's how history was being taught in the mid 20th century. It was a white history, and it was a history, where, as I say, where African-Americans just were not actors. It's very different today. Some people don't like that. The president just the other day uh, had a forum on history in which he said, we got to go back to that old white supremacist. He didn't use those that language, but that's what he's talking about. Uh, we don't want to hear about all these minorities. Uh, why are we hearing about Native Americans and, you know, and uh, African-Americans? Uh, we need the American heroes. Well, you know, my view is, people who were former slaves and are now going in, you know, going into business or going into politics or standing up to the Klan, those are heroes. Those are American heroes who we ought to celebrate. Um, and uh, not just the George Washingtons and others are also worth celebrating. This is a very important point, I think, and I want to spend a little bit more time with you on it because the... It, it strikes me that we sometimes overlook the power of narrative in shaping our future and the power of narrative about our, our past. And I'm thinking specifically about the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, about our nation, about its founding, and how that can reinforce what we believe is possible in the future or what we believe the future should be. And you have have taught at, at the City University of New York, at Columbia University, at Oxford and Cambridge, which I just want to point out makes you probably unique in the world of, of academics, if not uh, just historians. But um, there are other nations, Germany in particular, where they take very seriously the teaching of history of their own worst episodes. And that changes their understanding of themselves and who they are and what their duty is. And I, I want to ask you to, to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, at the, of course, that's a very important question. And historians are always grappling with this. What is the purpose of writing history in the first place? What is the value to society of our scholarship? And I think you're right. You know, there are there is a tendency in this country going way back. I mean, you can go back to the Puritans, you know, in colonial New England, uh, to, you know, to say, as John Winthrop did, we are a city on a hill. We are a model to everybody else. The point of the United States then as an independent nation is not just to go about our own business, but to represent democracy and liberty to the whole world. Right. That's what Lincoln said. We're the last best hope of man. Well, if you take that view you're not going to be sympathetic to views of history that may uh, cast you in a less than favorable light. Um, it, that doesn't quite fit the American psyche uh, that we are the model of what a society ought to be. Um, unfortunately, the problem is that uh, history has to lead up to the present. The history you know has to help you explain the present. I mean, again, I'm going back to when I was in high school. Yeah, I learned a wonderful story of America being born perfect and then getting better and better ever since. And um, all the problems had basically been solved. Um, 
Well, and then in the 1960s, suddenly thousands of people were in the streets demanding greater rights. Demand, you know, there was the civil rights movement, there was the student movement, there was the women's movement. Where did that come from? The history we had learned could not have led up to the present. And that meant it wasn't a very good or useful uh, history. Uh, as you say, some countries have tried to deal with the less appealing aspects of their past. South Africa, when uh, you know apartheid ended, set up their Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Reconciliation, a very noble idea, necessary in a society after traumatic experiences, but it has to come with truth. You can't just have a reconciliation based on blindness or based on forgetting everything that happened. You've got to have a accurate vision of or a version of what history had happened. Or even in Germany, there was a recent book published, unfortunately, the name of the author slips my mind at the moment. Um, what we can, or learning from the Germans, it said. Now, most Americans, especially an older generation, doesn't think we really want to learn that much from the Germans, but nonetheless, it's about how they deal with the history of Nazism as comparison to how we deal with the history of slavery. Some of it's about these debates about monuments, you know, uh, Confederate monuments. Well, in, they don't have monuments to Hitler in Germany. You know, they don't have monuments to the Nazis. We have monuments to Confederates, which is our equivalent, but uh, they don't do that. But how they teach, how they talk about that past. And in fact, they're much more candid about what happened in that country than we are. Uh, so, um, well, and there are you know, in Germany I, monuments to every group that was murdered in the Holocaust. Oh, well, of course there were, there are monuments to the victims. Yeah. And, um, you know, to my mind, we should, we should have monuments to people like, you know, let's just take Hiram Revels 150 years ago this year, he was the first African-American elected to Congress. Well, to the Senate, um, and from Mississippi, you're not getting a lot of black people uh, elected to the Senate from Mississippi lately. But um, yeah, he's elected. And then another one, too. both those people deserve monuments also. You know, the first black senators, that's pretty important in American history. But there's no statue of Iron Revels or Blanche K. Bruce down there because the people who choose what to remember only want a certain part of the history remembered. And uh, as your question a little while ago suggested, we, you know, the more history you know, I think the better equipped you are to be a citizen of the current moment that we're living, that we're living in. We're talking with Eric Foner. He's the recipient of the Annisfield Wolf Book Award, Award for uh, Lifetime Achievement. He's the author of The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. That's, I think, the 20th title or something like that that he has put out. That's just his most recent book. Um, and if you'd like to join the conversation, if you have a question for Dr. Foner, please text it to 330-541-5794. The number again is 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet your question at the City Club, and we will work it into the second half of the program. Dr. Foner, of all the areas in American history, and frankly, in all the areas in history you could have studied, um, you chose Reconstruction. And I know that you couldn't escape studying history as it ran deeply in your family, in your, in your genetic makeup. Um, but why Reconstruction? You know, I, I, in a way, it was an accident. I mean... Uh, my first book, my doctoral dissertation, which I wrote in the 1960s at Columbia, uh, under the supervision of one of the great historians of that era, Richard Hofstadter, 
Uh, it was about the uh, Republican Party before the Civil War, when it was uh, sort of the anti-slavery party that elected Lincoln, you know, in 1860. And I was trying to in look at their ideology, their political organization, etc. But that's way before Reconstruction, or at least 20 years before Reconstruction. Um, and then I was working on some other projects, but I got one day in the mid-1970s, I guess it would have been, I got a call out of the blue from Richard Morris, who was a distinguished historian, who was the editor of a series that Harper and Rowe Publishers was publishing called the New American Nation series, where there's a book on each period of history and um, of American history. And he said, you know, the guy who was going to be writing the Reconstruction book has sort of dropped out. He's moved on to something else. Uh, would you like to try that? Uh, would you like to take that up? And I said, yeah, that sounds kind of interesting. And I thought it would take me, because I'd always been interested in Reconstruction, and many of the cast of characters were the same. Some of the very same people who were fighting against slavery before the Civil War were now key actors in Reconstruction, um, which, by the way, parenthetically, is a very important point, because uh, going back to the Supreme Court, you know, when you interpret these amendments, you've got to figure out where they're coming from. The people who wrote those amendments were veterans of the anti-slavery movement. They just weren't lawyers who were, you know, coming up with some abstract phrases. They were people who wanted to put an anti-slavery, anti-racist view of America into the Constitution, who'd had a long period of fighting for that well before the Civil War. Um, but anyway, uh, what happened was, uh, I thought it would take me a couple of years to write this book. Uh, but then I was, I began doing research in the South, and I discovered there was this tremendous array of sources, of letters, of publications, of all sorts of things, which had really never been used very much by historians, and which gave me, for the first time, a real feeling for the grassroots, what was going on in a society which where everything was up for grabs. Slavery was ended, but what was gonna replace it? What was gonna be the status of black people? What was gonna be the labor system? What was gonna be the system of race relations to replace slavery? And this was being fought out day to day on the ground throughout the South. And I began to realize that this was a story that had not really been told by anybody. And uh, it took me a long, a lot longer to write this book. It took me about 10 years to work, to research and write the book rather than the two years I had anticipated. Um, but I became more and more fascinated by Reconstruction, more and more fascinated or impressed by the idea that really the existing historical accounts were quite inadequate. And, um, and that this understanding of this period is really necessary if you wanna know what's going on in our society in the late 20th and now early 21st centuries. Um, and I've been very involved in trying to promote knowledge of Reconstruction. After my book was published, I was the curator of a museum exhibition which traveled around the country in the 1990s about Reconstruction. I was the uh, chief historian on the uh, PBS documentary about Reconstruction, the series from last year, which Henry Louis Gates was the producer of. Um, I've written a couple of other books relating to one or another aspect of Reconstruction, including this one. So um, it seems like I can't get myself out of Reconstruction. You know, I had mentioned at the top of the show about the origins of the Annisfield Wolf Award and that they were, the, these awards are about 
people who have and books that have made important contributions to our understanding of racism and bigotry and our appreciation of the rich diversity of human cultures. It's a little different than winning the Pulitzer. And um, and I wonder if it has a particular significance to you, since you have really devoted your entire life to helping us better understand that formative time for race relations. Absolutely. I'm not against the Pulitzer. I was very happy to receive that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I know this has a special meaning because, uh, you know, I I was in college and then graduate school in the 1960s. I was, but I grew up in a family where these issues were very important. I mean, my my parents always talked about the, Jim Crow, racism, segregation as being the number one problem facing American society, how to make this a just society for all. Um, not many white people growing, you know, in the suburbs of New York City, where I was growing up, were really that concerned with this question in the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s. I went, I was there at the March on Washington in 1963. My late brother uh, went to Mississippi in 1964 for Freedom Summer when those three civil rights workers were killed. Um, so these issues have been important to me for a long time. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois was a friend of my parents. I met him one time when he was very, very elderly. But, you know, so these things were part of my consciousness, the significance of the struggle for racial equality in both American history and in American society today. So, yes, obviously, the uh, a book award with this focus is tremendously, uh, you know, gratifying to me. The the only similar one that I got a few years ago was from the Underground, also in Ohio, actually, the Underground Railroad Freedom Center down in Cincinnati uh, gave me a, a Freedom Award, and I was very, uh, in the same sort of vein, you know, of people whose writings have helped to uh, illuminate these issues. So, um, yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to get it, and I, it does have special meaning for me. Well, I think all of Cleveland is delighted to congratulate you. And I will say again, we're talking with Dr. Eric Foner today. He is the recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Annisfield Wolf Book Awards. Uh, that award ceremony just happened this week, and it's an annual event. If you want to join our conversation, you can text your question to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. Or you can tweet it at the City Club, and we'll work it in. This is the City Club Friday Forum, and let's move along to questions from our audience. Do you think, Dr. Foner, that we are in a third founding or a third Reconstruction era? Yeah, that's a good question. The, uh, the, the civil rights movement of the 1960s was sometimes called the second Reconstruction um, because it was the second time in American history that these issues were front and center as the primary, you know, primary question facing American public life. Um, we have seen a remarkable upheaval of uh, or upsurge of um, demands for greater equality and more racial justice to this year. We've seen thousands of people out in the streets, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, uh, demanding not just a more equitable policing system, but a much broader array of changes to make real the promise of equality uh, in this country. Um, it's a little too soon to tell. By the way, if you ask a historian a question about the present, that's the answer you're likely to get. It's too it's too soon to tell. Yeah, ask me in 20 years, right? Right, exactly. And um, 
you know, so we don't know what the upshot is going to be. Will there be substantial change or not? Uh, I, and believe me, I, uh, to some extent, that depends on the election that is coming up in a month, the, both the uh, congressional and the presidential election, who will be in power in Washington. Although many of these um, demands are not actually national issues. You know, policing is not controlled by the federal government. That's a local problem. And uh, there are many communities which are grappling of how to improve, let us say, uh, the policing system and the criminal justice system. Um, so it's a little different in that those issues in the past were not the focus of uh, you know, of public demonstrations, etc. But now they are, along with other things. So, yeah, maybe um, maybe we will see a third reconstruction uh, uh, coming out of the turmoil of this year. But uh, let's come back, as you said, 20 years from now, and we'll see what we can say. Well, it is. It, it, I think part of what you're pointing to, though, is that these moments of reconstruction are are usually born out of intense turmoil and chaos. Yeah, and that's another thing that my book, uh, The Second Founding, uh, wants to emphasize, which is to look at constitutional changes from the bottom up, as it were, not just the debates in Congress, not just legal decisions, not just the traditional sites of lawmaking, but what are people demanding in the streets, you know, what are black conventions demanding, which are meeting at this time, uh, where are these, what are women saying about the principle of equality written into the Constitution, did that affect the status of women or not? It turned out it didn't all that much, at least then, although later on, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and others would pioneer the use of the 14th Amendment as a weapon against gender inequality as well as racial. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, it's all these questions are on our agenda today, and uh, we will... Um, you know, they come from all over the society, not just uh, from the top down, but through people in the streets demanding change. It will be up to your students, I suppose, to write the history of, uh, of or your student students to write the history of the Third Reconstruction Era. Um, uh, yeah, I hope so. You know, one of the things that uh, we all have to grapple with as historians and candidly realize is that uh, the fate of the historian is always to be superseded. <laughs> Somebody will come along and write a book that is better or different or points out that you're all wrong, you know, and that kind of thing. So we just have to accept that that's going to happen, just like we revised the interpretations of previous generations. Uh, here's another question for you. It would seem the 13th Amendment abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, except for, in the case of criminal sanctions, a loophole which has been used to the detriment, particularly of black Americans. Could you comment on that? Yeah, that's completely correct. Uh, the language of the 13th Amendment says, you know, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude can exist in the United States except as a punishment for crime. Now, I was very interested in where that language came from. Uh, it was not debated at all when Congress discussed the 13th Amendment. There was nobody, you know, they may Charles Sumner said, uh, the most he could say later on was, I really thought this could cause problems, but I didn't want to really up, a, you know, up, overturn the apple cart here. And anyway, my colleagues wanted to go and have dinner, so I didn't really want to bother them with this. But most, but most newspapers, most um, uh, uh, even black groups didn't really say much about that criminal exemption. It was a loophole, and it opened the door to a massive system of convict labor which arose in the South in the late 19th century, where black people primarily were convicted of 
all sorts of minor crimes, which were now called felonies. You steal a chicken and you're in jail for 10 years. And while you are, you can be leased out to work on a plantation or a railroad or a timber operation. And um, that's allowed, under, at least the courts have said, that's allowed under the 13th Amendment. Now, there are people who think this was all a conspiracy to create, you know, mass incarceration and convict labor later on. I think, no, it was an inadvertent mistake. Because remember, there weren't really very many prisons in 1865. Uh, the South had hardly any. There's no point in throwing a slave in prison. The, job, the point of a slave is to get him to work, not to sit in prison for a few years. So, um, and even in the North, there were prisons, but not, not a lot. There was no giant system of prison labor, but it later did develop. And I think that was a serious flaw in the, uh, in the 13th Amendment. I absolutely agree with that. Nonetheless, putting the abolition of slavery into the Constitution was still a remarkable change in the nature of American society. I, you know, I mean, where, what what other gigantic change that gigantic has happened in the uh, hundreds of years of our country? Um, Dr. Foner, if you'll permit me a, a quick breaking news update. Joe Biden, the Vice President Joe Biden has tested negative for COVID. So, uh, I, and I know All that right. this is the news of the day, so we want to make sure that, that people yeah. are current if, they're, if they care. And uh, Okay, thank you. And uh, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I can't comment on that. I wouldn't ask you to comment on it. Yeah, good luck to all of them. (laughs) Exactly. Um, uh, Another question for you. I work at a high school and we're starting a class called Ethnic Inclusiveness. What recommendations would you have for topics for, uh, this is a a city of Cleveland school? Are we talking about, well, you know, more of a history. To me, I would look at it from a historical perspective. That's my job, to be a historian. and I think, uh, you know, and as we were talking before about the narrative, you know, what is the narrative of, of ethnic inclusiveness? And I think the narrative is conflict, basically, about that. This is a highly contested issue. Who is an American? Who is entitled to be an American? Uh, who should be included? Who should not be included? This has been debated ever since, I, don't, I mean, from the beginning, but certainly this was debated during the revolution. It was debated at the Constitutional Convention. It was debated in the first, you know, the Constitution begins, we the people, we the people. But who are the people and who is entitled to become part of the American people? Certainly at the outset, there was a severe racial boundary around uh, American inclusiveness, American citizenship, the, the very first naturalization law, 1790, I mean, that's like right at the beginning, um, about how an immigrant can become a citizen. But it said, yeah, any immigrant come here, become a citizen after five years, as long as they're white. You have to be white to become an American citizen from abroad. Well, that kind of eliminated the majority of the world's population, right? And um, then, you know, jump way forward to the Dred Scott decision, um, uh, 1857, the Supreme Court says, well, you know, not even black people born here can be citizens. The first law was about immigrants. Now, no, citizenship is for white people only. So, on the other- And that's the original you know, idea. But of course, Reconstruction is important because it changes that. Mm-hmm. It puts this principle of birthright citizenship into the Constitution regardless of race. 
anybody born here. That's about as inclusive as you can get. I don't care if your ancestors are from Africa, China, uh, Latin America, Ireland, you're born here, you're a citizen. So that's the opposite pole, that the, this tension between exclusion and inclusion in this ethnic uh, uh, story. But to pursue a, a methodology that I think you've employed greatly in your work to look at the, the actions of individuals um, might be another way to approach that. I think of individuals, but also even in non-governmental institutions, places like Oberlin College, which was the first to uh, to integrate, and um, and smaller efforts between ordinary Americans who chose yeah. to integrate their own lives and create inclusive communities. Absolutely, and I give all all uh, power or <laughs> all praise to Oberlin and other institutions like that, which. But they were pretty unusual <laughs> before the Civil War. There weren't a heck of a lot of Oberlin's. I mean, let's take Columbia University, where I taught. As far as I can ascertain, the first black American student at Columbia College was in the early 20th century. Columbia was founded as King's College in 1754. They did not have a black American student until around 1908, something like that. Now. What is And that's New York City. I'm not talking about Mississippi here. I'm talking about New York City, which prides itself on being a melting pot of all these different groups, liberal, etc. But there barriers like that have existed throughout American history. But as you say, there's also a long history of people demanding inclusion, demanding equality. And those are the ones who help to push uh, progress along. Another question for you, Dr. Eric Foner. Could you talk about the role of capitalism in the way that Reconstruction unfolded? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, how many hours do we have here? <laughs> Let's you know, it to like uh, two or three minutes. Yeah, you know, uh, certainly the um, there, there are two, con you know, the, the, the end of slavery meant that now the South is going to be a fully capitalist economic order. Uh, with labor no longer, you know, with labor not owned by the employer anymore, we're out to be able to compete in the labor market like other people. Uh, and agriculture had to be reorganized into a more capitalistic mode, even though the old plantations were selling good cotton, etc., on the world market. But also, Reconstruction was a time of considerable northern capitalist interest in investment in the South, in railroad building, in, in uh, factory construction, things like that. And that uh, added to uh, complications of, of, of how, to, how to develop the, the transition from, uh, how to work out the transition from slavery to freedom. Reconstruction in the South takes place at exactly the moment when this massive industrial revolution is taking place in the North, centered in places like Cleveland and Pittsburgh and Chicago and that whole Great Lakes region. And um, you might almost say the South kind of misses out on that. And for a long time, you know, the, the real engines of economic progress are in the North and West, not in the South. And that poses a big problem for Reconstruction and for Black Americans and for all Southerners, that they are stuck in a backward region which is finding it, which is falling further and further behind the rest of the country. And for Black people, they're at the bottom of an economic ladder in a 
rather poorly situated region in the first place. So the economic challenges are, are what shall I say, very, uh, very difficult for, uh, for everybody in the post-Civil War South. That brings to mind uh, an important question about how we understand history. I remember an interview with Brian Stevenson uh, just short at around the time he was beginning to enter the national consciousness. And Brian Stevenson, of course, of the Equal Justice Initiative. And um, he... He, he posited uh, that the Great Migration was, while we'd always been taught, it was for economic opportunity, that in fact what was happening is that blacks were fleeing terror in the South. How do you see it? Uh, the Great Migration, uh, people leave for all sorts of reasons, and all those things were were true, so to speak. I mean, the Jim, the Jim Crow system that people were leaving in the South to come up to places like Chicago and Cleveland and Philadelphia, et cetera, um, yeah, it was a system that covered all these things. They were fleeing that they didn't have the right to vote. They were fleeing the fact that economic opportunity was minimal for blacks in the South. They were fleeing the fact that uh, their children couldn't get a reasonable, uh, adequate education. And they were fleeing violence, terrorism, absolutely. A, 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 a whole system of criminal justice, which was prejudiced against African-Americans, the Klan or other groups, or lynching, which of course his museum tell, tells us about, um, uh, 4,000 people more or less lynched in the United States, uh, mostly Southern blacks from 1880 to around 1950. Um, so all of those things were part of us. They're fleeing a system which has all these elements. So I think it's kind of pointless to say, well, they're fleeing, 20% they're fleeing uh, economic impoverishment and 30% they're fleeing the fact they can't vote and 20% is this. It's a, it's a system that reinforces itself and, um, you know, and that people didn't need to sort of parse out which element they were fleeing. They were fleeing the system that had taken hold in the South after the end of Reconstruction. Another question for you from uh, a reader as well as a listener here, but uh, what I got out of the book How Democracies Die by Professor Levitsky is that racism in the U.S. is caused by the political process, not by a social process. The Democrats propagated racism during Reconstruction to counter the efforts of Republicans to maintain power in the South. Professor Levitsky suggests the same is occurring today, but this time by Republicans. What do you think? Uh, I'm always loath to uh, comment on a book I haven't read, oh, so uh, it would be difficult. But let me just say that racism goes way back in this country, uh, way before there were the political uh, benefits of it for one party or another were evident. Uh, I think, you know, this is kind of simplistic, but I think it's pretty straightforward to say, look, a, a racially based system of plantation slavery is what it, which we had starting in the late 17th century is going to produce a whole ideology of racism there's no question about that it wasn't started in order to promote racism the, the plantation slavery was started in order to make a buck you know and to but black slave labor was available and it was transported from africa and um, once you do that, once you make white is free, black is slave, white has rights, black doesn't have rights, a whole edifice of racial thinking, racist thinking, uh, builds up uh, along with that. And so um, to quote Alexander Hamilton during the revolution, um, slavery makes us think things that are demonstrably untrue. 
Slavery makes me think that black people are incapable, that they're inferior. Whereas in fact, they're out there being very capable, doing work, doing all sorts of things. Um, but uh, racism makes you think of a lot of things which aren't true. I mean, Hamilton was absolutely right about that. Uh, and that ideology once entrenched takes on a life of its own even, and of course survives even after slavery, the cause of it is abolished. Another question for you, uh, Local Book Club is reading your newest book this spring. Is there a question or discussion point that you hope we address? Not having yet read your book, is there a focus in the second founding that best supports the anti-racism policies we see today? Uh, you know, it, 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 if I can't review a book I haven't read, it's also kind of not good to review your own book. Uh, and, you know, to say what's really good in there. I, I don't know what to say. I mean, I think... Um, you could just uh, say thanks for reading. <laughs> yeah, of course. Thanks for reading it, and um, good luck. And uh, you know, I, you might well, you might ask one of the little questions I had when I was writing it was how much to say about the more the present. You know, this is a book about Reconstruction and the post-Reconstruction years. Um, there's an epilogue about where we stand right now, or at least when the book was published, things have changed since then a little bit. Uh, it might be worth thinking about how much should there have been more about the present uh, should there have been less uh, how, how does the book link past and present um i'd be interested to know what they think about that all right um another listener writes i read recently about a presidential election in the late 1800s the deal the compromise of 1877 was that rutherford b hayes would be granted the presidency in exchange for withdrawing support for reconstruction can you speak about this? Yeah, well, I suspect they, that's, you can. <laughs> that's the end of Reconstruction, the bargain of 1877. I mean, you know, people have been calling me up about that lately, reporters, because uh, are we headed toward a contested election? Nobody knows. Um, but yeah, you had a dispute as to who had won the electoral college majority. They was Tilden, the Democrats, seemed to have a popular vote majority, but as we know, that doesn't necessarily get you elected. And uh, three southern states sent in dual uh, reports of who had carried that state. Uh, they, the Democrats claimed to have carried, these are Florida, uh, Louisiana, and South Carolina. The Democrats and Republicans both claimed to carry those states. Dueling uh, results were sent up to Congress, which has to, which has to decide who won. They couldn't figure it out or they were divided. The Senate was Republican and the House was Democratic. They set up an electoral commission, which is completely, you know, just outside the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution about an electoral commission. Uh, meanwhile, a sort of behind-the-scenes bargain was made between Republican leaders and Democratic leaders. I, I think what it shows is that our Constitution does not tell you what happens if there's a dispute. It tells you what happens if one guy wins the electoral vote. Uh, that's fine. It's easy. But what if there's a dispute as to who won? Uh, now, this could happen again. This could happen again if in close states. Florida always seems to be in the middle of these things, like in Bush v. Gore back in 2000. Um, you know, let's say there's a dispute about who carried Florida. It's a, half of 1% or something. And, you know, there are recounts and people are claiming that fraudulent ballots are used. And the, um, I don't know, the electoral, whoever it is, uh, board in Florida sends up to Congress that... Uh, Biden carried the state. The governor sends up something else saying, no, no, actually, uh, Trump carried the state. Who's going to decide? Um, Was Reconstruction really the bargaining chip? 
Well, yes and no. I mean, in the sense, by then, Reconstruction had waned considerably. Many Republicans had lost interest in Reconstruction. Uh, the bargaining chip was actually that the Democrats would be allowed to take control of the, those three states, the last three states that were under uh, Reconstruction governments. They promised to respect the constitutional rights of African Americans. They didn't keep that promise. But certainly, the, Hayes promised to withdraw troops out of the South. In other words, that's a symbol. There were hardly any troops there by this point anyway, but it was a symbol of that the federal government will no longer intervene, that the Southern, Southern politics will be left to the South, but particularly to the white South, but the Republicans will control the federal government. So in a sense, you're getting Republicans win the White House, Democrats win that they're going to control the whole of the South. So it's not a very pleasant bargain. And certainly for African-Americans, it was pretty disastrous. Um, so it makes you hope that we don't have to go through a whole dispute like that again. It's not hard to see that as groundwork that laid for the challenges that we faced throughout the 20th century and the early 21st century. The groundwork laid, you mean, in, For, this, in terms dispute. of the sort of allowing the southern states to uh, to rule with white supremacy. Yeah. Uh, the problem is, uh, as the other thing a historian will tell you to any question is uh, it's complicated. You know, that's why I stopped signing on to amicus briefs at, in legal cases where I used to. But then, you know, l lawyers want a yes and no answer and historians don't like that. It's, oh, by the way, yeah, but on the other hand. Um, yes, it, this was an important turning point, yet it wasn't like immediately in 1877 everything ended. Uh, there's this kind of generation of a intermediate, yeah, some places blacks continued to vote and hold office, some place they didn't. Sometimes the Supreme Court upheld the rights of black people, sometimes it didn't. The 1880s are kind of this indeterminate period, uh, but by 1890, uh, and then after that, the, the Jim Crow system becomes really entrenched in the South and the right to vote is taken away finally by Southern states. And then you've got, it leads into all the disasters really of the 20th century as far as African-Americans are concerned. So yeah, 1877 is very important, but um, it takes a good while for the, all the implications to be worked out. Well, Dr. Foner, I know that you are joining us from Connecticut, and we here in the Western Reserve hope that at some point uh, in the near future, we hope you'll be able to come visit, and uh, and maybe we can do this in person. Uh, we're just deeply grateful to you, though, for your years of scholarship and helping us to understand, as I said earlier, the, um, uh, the true stories that we should be telling ourselves about ourselves and about our history. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to at least virtually be there with you in Cleveland. Well, it's a it, it's a wonderful thing, and as you know, you join uh, you you join a, a great many wonderful, very important, and meaningful authors in the in the long list of those who have received the lifetime achievement from the Ennisfield Wolf Award. Well, it's it's an honor, certainly. Thank you so much for joining us, Eric. It's been great talking to you today. Okay. And thank you as well for joining us for our Friday Forum with Dr. Eric Foner. He is, as I said, the recipient of the 2020 Annisfield Wolf Book Award for Lifetime Achievement and author most recently of The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Our forum today would not be possible without the partnership of the Annisfield Wolf Book Awards and the Cleveland Foundation, and we're very grateful to them. 
Our forum today is also part of One Community Reads, Racial Equity in America. This program is happening now through December 2020. The nine library systems in Cuyahoga County, along with the City Club and other partners, have curated a, a series of online events with writers, speakers, and activists to help residents of Cuyahoga County learn more about racial justice issues from a variety of sources. More information is available at onecommunityreads.org. Thanks also to members, sponsors, and donors, and others who support our mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. You can find out more and join them at cityclub.org slash thank you. Next Friday, October 9th, we will host an a, a NEOEA, that's the Northeast Ohio Education Association Day Forum on Trauma-Informed Educational Practices, featuring Habiba Grimes, the CEO of the Positive Education Program, and Dr. Megan Holmes, founding director of the Center on Trauma and Adversity at Case Western Reserve University. We hope you'll join us for that. A couple of other quick notes. This week, we launched a project called Five Days for Democracy. More than 500 of you joined us for those five days. It's a collaboration with the Nine Libraries systems in Cuyahoga County, inviting you to spend just a little bit of time each day for five days thinking about what democracy means to you, why it's important, and why it's worth fighting for. You can check it out at cityclub.org slash five days. Also, a few weeks ago, we launched a new video series called Democracy Unchained. It's fantastic. Our third episode featured conversations with Secretary of State Frank LaRose, NPR journalist Maria Inojosa, author Dave Daly, and activist Jackie Salit, and many others. Find out more at democracyunchained.io. I am Dan Malthrop. That's it for today. Please make sure you register to vote. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.